Hey guys, good morning again. Good to see everyone. It's a privilege to be here. You know, I was not planning to be up here teaching from this text. In fact, um, a week ago I told Pastor Troy, I said, wow, this is really harsh. This is really hard stuff. So I hope you're ready for it. <laughs> but, um, what, what, you know, when you sign up around here to do stuff, and in this case, like, be an intern, they don't tell you that. Part of the job description includes doing impromptu sermons on, like, really hard text. So, so here I am. Um, I'm just kidding. It's, it's a privilege. It's always a privilege to teach God's Word, and so, so I'm stoked to be here. And, wow, reading that out loud as a congregation, that was powerful and terrifying. The first section, the warning, that is. And um, if you've been with us for a while, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that the the book of Hebrews that we're, that we're studying through, it's full of warnings. And perhaps some of the harshest warnings in all of the Bible. And there's a lot of them. And the writer of Hebrews, he's not afraid. He's not afraid to say it how it is and basically address the danger that he sees his congregation facing. But think about it. That's really what good shepherds do. That's what good shepherds do. That's what good leaders do. That's what people who love others do. For those of you who are parents, how, many, how, how long does it take for your kids to internalize and to own and to act on a warning? Why do you repeat warnings over and over? Why do you rewarn and re-remind your kids about things that are potentially dangerous? Because they need to hear warnings, right? As long as a danger is present, a warning is warranted and acceptable. It's good. And I remember growing up, in the jungle, my brothers and I, we used machetes for everything. And so we were young kids, but we would go around with machetes. And, and my dad, that, that's probably part of the reason why his hair's gone gray, gone white, his beard, is because we'd run around with machetes. But he would, all growing up, as long as I can remember, he would warn us, guys, be careful with those machetes. If you're chopping on wood, don't, don't ch- cut off a finger. It won't grow back. And he would warn us. And so, and so that's... Um, in turn, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the same way now. I, I get, I'm constantly warning people about things. And, um, but but the, the point is, warnings are for our good. It's designed to instill in us a fear, a godly fear that leads to perseverance. So it's about time. Here in the book of Hebrews, we've been hearing a lot of good encouragement. We've been hearing a lot of good teaching. But Mystery Man is back with another warning. And this warning, just like all the other ones, is directed to the community of faith. So that's people like you and me. So there's something in here for all of us. But before we dive in, I just wanted to kind of do a refresh and get perspective. Let's zoom out. Let's just get some perspective for where we're at in this book. Because what's been like months for us <laughs> going through this has been just minutes for the original readers. So let's refresh for a minute. After nearly 10 chapters, Mystery Man, he's begun to wrap up his case for the superiority of Jesus the superiority of his revelation, how he's come to be the final word, the superiority of his sacrifice, of his priesthood, of his covenant. That's what we learned in chapter 1. We were told that Jesus, he shares God's attributes, that he's higher than any angelic creature, that he's God himself, he's the creator, that he came to be God's decisive word. In chapter 2, we learned that everything has been put in subjection to God's Son. Everything. In chapter 3 and 4, we were told that Jesus is far greater than Moses. Far greater than Moses. In chapters 5 and 6, we were told that Jesus, he's come to fulfill the essential role as a mediator, as a high priest, right? And he's done that by becoming the God 
man. And we were warned very memorably about the eternal danger of apostatizing or not enduring in faith. And then in chapter 7, we went back to the issue of Jesus' priesthood. We talked about the mysterious figure of Melchizedek. And we, we landed on the conclusion that basically Jesus, as a priest, has, has, he, he did what the, what the priests of the Old Testament couldn't do. And that is, he brought lasting and true peace with God. He made that possible. And then in chapters 8, 9, and then into 10, which we're in now, we got to travel back in time. And we got to consider how everything about the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system, from the tabernacle and its furnishings, to the blood of animals, to that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from sinful men, how all that pointed to Jesus. So we've gone through a lot. And then last week, we were encouraged by Pastor Troy, in light of all these truths, in light of all this, to live gospel-focused. And so now, in chapter 10, verse 26, we arrive at this, another warning. And, um, it's harsh. We just read it together. It's very harsh. So, so I, I pray that we receive this with humility and we win trust, knowing that this is for our good. Like I said, warnings are designed to produce in us a godly fear that leads to perseverance. And don't worry, there's a great encouragement, as we saw, that follows after. So let's get started. The first point of the sermon, and really the, the thrust, it's the bulk, it's the warning, is that there is no assurance of salvation for the carnal Christian, the carnal Christian. No assurance of salvation. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27, we just read. This is what it says. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that's going to consume the adversaries. <laughs> this is a loaded sentence. Loaded so let's pick it apart. Let's look at this. The four there, if you're, if you're using an ESV, that's really important, right? It connects to everything we just learned last week. So let's, let's follow the line of thought. Just look up a few verses in your Bible. Let's look to verse 19 there in chapter 10. What's that all about? In verse 19, we see the truths. He says, since we have confidence to approach God through Christ's sacrifice and mediation as our high priest, because this is true, then you go down to verse 22, that's the application. Because this is true, in verse 22, let us, all the let us, let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let's be the church. That was all the let us. So you have the truths, you have the application, and now we're in verse 26. And you see his line of, of reasoning. This is the consequences for not responding. This is the consequences for not applying these truths to our lives. And mystery man says, for... If we don't, then none of this matters. None of this matters. And it gets really intense. But you follow the line of thought. Because all this is true, let's respond accordingly, church. Because if we don't, this isn't for us. This isn't for us. There's no way to soften this blow. You can't dumb this down. You can't sanitize this. As a pastor who's concerned for the eternal well-being, the soul's of his flock. Mystery man, he's saying, I care about you. I love you guys. But if your lives aren't transformed by these truths that we've been studying, these things that I've been teaching you, that I've been exhorting you, that I've been encouraging you with, that I've been praying over you, if none of this has any lasting transformation in your lives, then none of this matters. This isn't for you. 
All I've done, I've just wasted a bunch of ink and killed some papyrus plants. <laughs> you guys can go because everything else you're about to hear is bad news. I have no assurance to give you. That's what he's saying. And this warning, it's harsh and it's pointed to the type of person in the faith community who I'm going to call the carnal Christian or the fleshy Christian, the Christian who lives according to the flesh. This is referring to a a carnal Christian. It's referring to a professing believer within the community of faith who's been surrounded by the knowledge of the truth, right? He sat under the teaching of God's word. He's been discipled by others. He's lived in the community of faith. He's worshiped in the church. He's served along others. And yet, and yet, that truth that he's been surrounded by, it's had no lasting impact on his life. This person's greater inclination, it's not God's glory. It's not doing the will of God. It's not pleasing God. It's just living for his own pleasures. That's a carnal Christian. And the key attribute we see for such a person in verse 26 is that this person deliberately sins after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Deliberately sins after receiving the knowledge of the truth. You know, there's a difference, a huge difference between deliberate sin and ignorant sin. And of course, Jesus said, well, there's no man is good, right? We know that everyone sins, but there's a difference here, a key difference. And um, as an example, you know, if you go out this summer, if you head on a boat into the Gulf to go fishing, and you don't have your fishing, fishing license, and you do that in ignorance, if you're caught by the Coast Guard, you might, you might get some mercy, right? There might be some understanding there. There's a little bit of wiggle room. But if you go out over and over again, the whole summer you're fishing without your fishing license, and that Coast Guard catches up to you again, there's consequences, right? There's consequences. And so the difference is, the difference is that the weight of greater responsibility, it lies on those who've been surrounded by the knowledge of the truth. And the carnal Christian, he lives in, deri- in deliberate opposition to that truth. And so that's what, that's, what the, that's what our writer is describing here. This is the type of person who this applies to. And, you know, in our circles, sin, it's often described as what? Missing the mark, right? You miss the mark, you sin. Missing the mark. But for the carnal Christian to deliberately sin, pre- premeditated, intentional, deliberate sin, to do that after receiving the knowledge of the truth, it's like a guy taking his bow, pulling back, aiming at the target, then turning over and launching the arrow in the opposite direction, deliberately missing the mark. (laughs) There's no excuse for that. He's not even trying. Not even trying to hit the mark. He's shooting in the opposite direction. That is a carnal Christian. It's somebody who deliberately sins. And so there's a huge difference. This person's missing the mark on purpose. And for such a person, our text says, this is the harshest, harshest thing. It says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for such a person. According to our text, there's no assurance of salvation. There's no assurance for the professing believer who just lives on in deliberate sin and total, and total, um, just disregard for the truth that's been presented to him, his, his whole experience among the community of faith. There's no assurance. And For the true believer, for the true believer, it hurts when they miss the bullseye. It hurts. The true believer is grieved 
when they slip, when they make a mistake, when they don't hit that mark. They're grieved when they let their Lord down, right? They strive to live a life that's pleasing to God, that's in accordance with the truth of his word. They strive to bring him glory in all they do. And when they miss the mark, that grieves their soul. They're hurt by that. True believers do sin. They do miss the mark all the time, but that hurts. And that's the difference. True believers, they fight. They fight against it with all their might. Do you see the difference? True believers, they are marked by deliberate obedience, not deliberate sin. So no, a carnal Christian, he can't expect to receive all the, 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 the incredible truths that we've been learning, right? The benefits of Christ's sacrifice that we've been studying for the last, like, six chapters. He can't expect to receive that. That doesn't apply to him anymore. That's what Mystery Man is saying. Instead, our text says, if you continue to read through that verse, that person should expect a fearful expectation of judgment in a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. <laughs> These are strong words, harsh words. Mystery man, he's holding nothing back. He's not afraid to tell the truth. He doesn't use euphemisms. He doesn't try to water this down, <laughs> make this more palatable. No, he's describing in the harshest detail the fate of those who don't endure in faith. And <laughs> in our culture today, this is not acceptable, right? This is, this is, this is preposterous. This is not tolerant. It's not tolerant or acceptable or okay to talk about hell, right? It's not popular to point out to people that there just might be people who will be under God's judgment, suffering for eternity. That, just, that does not fly in our culture today, and that's why a lot of churches are very selective about what they teach and preach. They don't do this. They don't go through a whole book of the Bible because you run into texts like this, and who wants to hear that? Not me, right? Nobody wants to hear about judgment. Nobody wants to hear about hell, fire, brimstone. This is not popular. Consumer Christianity, it's all about keeping churches packed and people happy by presenting a false gospel, a false gospel that never confronts souls with the eternal consequences for not enduring in faith, the eternal consequences of sin. People, they just want to hear about a Jesus who loves them, loves them for who they are and loves them enough to let them live just however they so desire, right? That's what people want to hear. But the problem is, the problem is, who talks about hell the most in the Bible? It's Jesus, right? Jesus does, believe it or not. It's Jesus. In the story of Lazarus and the rich man, you remember that? Jesus doesn't shy away. He doesn't shy away from describing the suffering, the agony, the tortures of Hades. Recall the story. There's a rich man. And outside his house, at the gate, was a beggar named Lazarus. And every day he'd go and beg for scraps, just crumbs of bread from the rich man's table. And his body was covered in sores. And the dogs would lick him. Well, both these men, at the end of their lives, died. And the next time they met, it was at death. And the story is picked up in the Gospel of um, Luke Chapter 16, verses 23 through 26. It's in your little guide. I'll read it. In Hades, where he, the rich man, was in torment, this man looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, 
Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And this man, this rich man, he answered and he said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. That's a Jesus story. That's a proverb. That's, that's a, a story from the mouth of Jesus. So like Jesus, mystery man, he doesn't spare us any uncomfortable details about hell because he's concerned for the eternal well-being of his readers. He cares about you and I enough to say these things. And the truth is, warnings are for our good, right? They stir up in our hearts godly fear, motivation that compels us to do the right thing. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, movie moments of all time. It comes from the first Pirates of the Caribbean. And, um, and one of the intro scenes, Captain Jack Sparrow, he makes his, his epic um, kind of intro into the film, and he comes into Port Royal, and he's like on this little sinking ship, and he sails in. And as he's coming in, he looks over to his left, and there, hanging from this craggy rock formation, is a trio of skeletons. And they're just whipping around in the wind and they're being splashed by the sea spray. And to the right of them, there's a sign. And that sign says, Pirates, ye be warned. (laughs) Of course, Jack Sparrow, he doesn't really take that into consideration, right? He goes on. But the point of that, the point of that is that warnings are for our good. And the British Navy at Port Royal, they displayed those convicted felons, right? up there so that others, they'd be warned about the consequences for piracy, so they would avoid that same fate. That was the whole point of that, of that disturbing and gross warning. It's meant to save people, to warn them, right? And in a sense, this is what Mystery Man's doing, right? These alarming details of fire, of suffering, this is meant for our good. He's describing in alarming detail the fate of those who don't endure in faith. So that the carnal Christian who's sitting there listening He'll stop, and he won't go down that same path. Like the rich man who found out in the parable, <laughs> hell is a permanent mistake. There's no improvement. There's no in reform that can take place in there. There's only eternal regret. So Christians, ye be warned. That's what he's saying. There's no assurance of salvation for the carnal, complacent believer who just lives for himself, blind to the truth that's all around him. Let's continue on. Verses 28 and 29. Mystery Man continues. He says, Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who's outraged the spirit of grace? (sighs) Mystery Man, he's using a Lesser to greater style argument. We've seen that many times in this book. Um, and, it, and it goes like this in this case. It goes like this. If people were put to death without mercy for breaking the law of Moses, then by logic, <laughs> by logic, those who claim to be followers of the Messiah, those who claim to be Christians, but who flaunt their sin and live as if the truth wasn't there right in front of them, they're going to have it a lot worse. 
That's the logic of this argument. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy because people claim that the Old Testament, the Old Testament, it's harsh in its dealings with rebels and lawbreakers. The Old Testament's all about bad news. Let's get to the New Testament. It's all about love and forgiveness, right? Well, no, no, not at all. This is a New Testament writer who's saying, that was nothing. That was nothing. And you're like, really? That was nothing? You go back to the book of Leviticus, you start reading. The consequences for dishonoring your parents. Death. (laughs) The consequences for sleeping around, being sexually promiscuous. Stoning to death. That's nothing? The carnal Christian, he, he can expect worse than that. That's what he's saying. And the more you study your Bible, you begin, you begin to grow to understand that the holiness of God is nothing to mess around with. The consequences for breaking God's law in the Old Testament, they're bad enough. But they're a lot worse for those who basically disregard and abuse God's grace and the truth of the gospel. It's going to be a whole lot worse for them. And as I was reading this and kind of studying this um, yesterday, I realized that, you know, this offense extends beyond just some kind of legal infraction, right? It's a lot worse than that. Honor is at stake. Look at these words. Trampled underfoot the Son of God. Profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Outraged the spirit of grace. This has all to do with God's honor. I think we easily miss that because we don't live in an honor-shame culture, right? You can't really trample Christ. It's just the opposite. Two weeks ago, Pastor, our, uh, in one of our sermons, we, we were, yeah, Pastor Bill was, was showing us how Christ rules and reigns with all power right now at God's right hand, and his enemies are going to be his footstool. So it's the opposite, right? You can't trample Christ. But what, what's, what's being said here is that by abusing God's grace and spurning the truth, that's basically likened here as humiliating and slandering God. Mystery man is saying that the carnal Christian makes a mockery of God's grace. It makes a mockery of the gospel. Imagine a U.S. Marine just trampling our country's flag in the mud. Disgrace! Or imagine somebody going and spitting on the U.S. Constitution. Humiliation! Slanderous. Who would do that? Right? This is kind of what he's saying. There's plenty of examples. Um, Icons in pop culture. Musicians. Actors. Movie stars who claim to be followers of Jesus. Right? And their lives have nothing to show for it. They completely compromise that statement by just the way they live, their personal lifestyles. They make a mockery of God's grace. You, you, and you can, some of these people probably come to mind. They make a mockery of God's grace by flaunting the very sins that Jesus came to die for. There's people like that in our culture, right? There's people like that in the church as well. And so we should beware because on Judgment Day, guess who will avenge God's honor and God's glory? God Himself. Keep reading. Verse 30, 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
<laughs> so if this whole warning hasn't been enough, this is, to me, this is the final nail in the coffin. Mystery Man, he basically goes, book to, or he goes back to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, and he takes these two quotes to remind his readers, right, proof from God's word. He goes back to God's word, and he shows them proof that God cannot be mocked. He can't be mocked. He will not allow his people to abuse and to dishonor his grace, his love, his mercy. He won't have it. It doesn't happen that way. And you'll notice back in um, verse 28 that according to the law of Moses, how was somebody condemned? If you want to get somebody in, in trouble and condemn them, how did that happen? Could you just do that yourself on your own testimony? No. If you read back, it says, had to be on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. And that comes from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19.15. In order to judge someone, it took two or three witnesses. So you might ask, well, is God, can God, can he judge alone? Like where, where are the other witnesses? How is it fair and right and just for God to judge alone? This very question, interestingly enough, it was asked of Jesus by the Pharisees in the New Testament. So let's look at Jesus' reply. This comes from John chapter 8, verses 13 and 18. So the Pharisees said to him, to Jesus, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the, and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that a testimony of two people is true. Well, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So, in other words, Jesus, Jesus doesn't judge on his own, but alongside his Father, and I would add by implication, the Holy Spirit. So we've been learning. And it's been amazing, right? About Jesus' high priesthood and how believers have confidence and hope and they can have joy and assurance in this life because they know that Jesus is acting on their behalf as a high priest. But do you know what? For those Christians, those professing believers who treat the gospel as a joke, who mock God's grace— for those people, they are not going to have Jesus as their high priest interceding for them on the day, on the day of judgment. They're not going to have Jesus telling the Father, I died for them. I died for that sin. They're covered in my righteousness. No, instead, Jesus is going to condemn them. These people are going to be among those who come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name, and this, and this, and this. But Jesus is going to reply, I never knew you. Get out of my sight. Depart from me, you doer of wickedness. So the Holy Trinity is going to stand together in joint witness against such people. So there's your witnesses. It's a fearful, fearful thought. And guys, I promise you on the weight of God's word, on the weight of scripture, that the only creatures who are going to be condemned to eternal suffering in the lake of fire They'll be God's enemies. I promise that. If you, as a professing Christian, living a life completely contrary to the gospel, if you, that, that you claim has saved you, if you go on living deliberately 
in a sinful lifestyle, if you just deliberately miss the mark all the time, you're siding with Satan. Satan deliberately misses the mark. He delights in that. There's no assurance of salvation for the carnal Christian. That's the point of this. They will, they will suffer. (laughs) They'll participate with Satan in eternal suffering, right? Alongside God's adversaries because they are his adversaries. That was the word used up here. Back in, um, back in the end of verse 27. For those people who are going to suffer that, they suffer alongside God's adversaries. They are his adversaries. And the truth is, no one wants to fall into the hands of the enemy, right? That's like, that's like one of the worst things that can happen. No one wants to fall into the hands of the enemy. But the truth is, for the carnal Christian, God is the enemy. And that's just, uh, that's a terrifying thought. So that's the warning, that's the warning. And God's word, it cannot be any clearer. You can take it or you can leave it. But this is, this, is what we, this is what we're reading. This is what we're seeing. This is what Mystery Man is bringing to bear on these people he loves. This is, this is truth. And it stings and it hurts, but it's for our good. I pray that we receive this warning. This is, this is my prayer. That we receive it with the heart of Proverbs 15, 5, which says, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. He's wise. In Psalm, my, my personal favorite, Psalm 141, verse 5, which reads, Let a righteous man strike me. <laughs> Let a righteous man punch me in the face. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. I need that. Let, that, let my head not refuse it. Don't you love that? <laughs> That's what a good warning does. It's like, bring, hit me. Bring it on. I need that, right? That, that's my prayer, and this is that, that's how we receive this. In James 5, 19 and 20, through 20, whoever brings a sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's my prayer for us as a church as we receive this warning corporately. This is the heart of our writer here. And if you, if anybody here, or if me or anybody else, if you walk away from this with an attitude of kind of contempt, in judgment, right? That's not the point of this. And you should be ashamed of yourselves. That's not the point of this. This isn't, so this isn't, this isn't something that we throw around lightly, right? This is serious. This isn't supposed to produce in us, in any of us who feel like we're righteous, some kind of haughty, judgmental attitude. No, this is, this is a warning for the corporate body, and it's meant to save people. It's meant to save souls, so, for the second point of the sermon, there's just two points here. Um, and that starts in verse 32 of our text. There is assurance. Point two, there is assurance of salvation for the enduring Christian. So, Rocky, God's word, it's my, it's my belief, my conviction, that God's word just doesn't go out for no reason. It's not, it's not a coincidence that this, this text is being preached It's no coincidence that some of us are here this morning. Some of us need to hear and receive this warning and act on it today and save our souls. Some of us need to. But others of us here who are listening need reassurance. Because we we all sin, right? After that warning, some of you might be thinking, I need some hope now. Where's the hope? Give me some good news. How do I know that my salvation is real? The good news is that mystery man, he doesn't end with that. 
but he tells us how we can have hope and assurance. We can have true confidence. That's the second part of the sermon. How? By recalling past examples of endurance and enduring now. Continuing on in endurance. That's the answer. So let's, let's continue reading here. Hebrews 10, 32 through 36. But, and that's a great word. <laughs> but, however, that being said, but, he says, recall the former days, friends, when after you were enlightened, you endured, past tense, past endurance. He's seen it. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, future endurance. I've seen you endure. You, you need to endure. You need endurance. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So, big disclaimer. Big disclaimer. Salvation, and we know this as a church, salvation is, is by grace, it's through faith in Christ alone. That's it, period. Jesus, he does all the work, right? Our confidence in salvation, it does not rest on our works, but on his work on the cross. And as his work now, as our high priest. That's what, that's what our salvation is contingent on. That's what we rely on. And, and the fruit of that salvation, of that miracle worked in our lives, the fruit of that salvation, it will lead to endurance. It'll lead to good works, which have been prepared for us. And this is what Mystery Man is encouraging his readers with. He's saying, I've seen this in you. This is true, that this does not minimize in any, in any way this warning that was just given, but he says, hold on, I've seen this in you. This is true of you. I've seen you endure. I've seen fruit of the Holy Spirit in your lives. So don't be alarmed. He's encouraging them. And kind of the historical context, this is really cool. You know, at this point, um, the persecution in the life of the in history of the church, the persecutions of Nero were looming in the horizon, but they hadn't come yet. It was about to get really hard for Christian, for Christians, for believers. But even in the book of Acts, as we read, we see that, that Orthodox Jews were ardently opposed to the way, to the way of Christianity, right? And in the books of, book of Acts, if you're reading along, you'll see how Christianity was regularly presented by these zealous Jews as a teaching in a way that was treasonous to Rome, that was disruptive to society, that was dangerous. This is how zealous Jews presented the gospel, presented Christianity. And so, Jew, and so Christians, they were persecuted pretty harshly. We, we read about this in the scriptures. And so this is the context here for these readers. The mystery man, he's saying that, man, as former Orthodox Jews, you guys, I've seen fruit in your lives. You guys have stepped out from your comfort zone, from the safety of, 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 of your life around the synagogue, from your traditions and in your culture. You've stepped out of that to associate with and help other Christians, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So this was a big deal for, for again, for these, for these Jews who had been living in Judaism all their lives. And now, now following Jesus— to, again, go out of their comfort zone, 
to associate with other believers, maybe even some of them Gentile believers, to help them, give them aid, support them while they're in prison. All these things we read about. That's amazing. That just doesn't happen on its own. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And Mystery Man is saying, I've seen this in the history of your lives. In the history of this church, I've seen this. So what are some of the things we read about? These believers, they endured public scorn. They lost freedom. They lost property. They lost, I would say, reputation and status probably in the midst of it. These believers, they wanted to support and sustain those who were locked away in imprisonment. And bottom line, the point being, they put their necks out on the line for their brothers and sisters, and they proved their allegiance to Christ. This was an amazing testimony to the world. This was the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And for application for us, I would just say, can the same be said of us, Rocky? Is the, true, is the same true of us, church? Do we associate with the underdog and with other believers who are mocked for their faith? Or do we just prefer to like keep a low profile, not, not get in the way, not, not associate with those kind of people? Do we have compassion on those who are suffering for righteousness' sake? Do we compassion on such people or do we just look at them as, as like radicals? Are we willing to lay down our rights? We're all about our rights here. Are we willing to lay that down and just be mistreated for Christ's sake? Our like Christ? Does our eternal home, <laughs> does that matter more to us than just all the stuff around us that we accumulate? Our cars and our houses and our pets and our degrees? If these things are true of us as a church, then guys, we have some reason to be confident. He says, don't throw away your your confidence. It's important. It's good. If these things are true of us, we have reason to be confident. And I I see a lot of these characteristics in our church. Uh, Some things I've seen recently. I loved how our church responded just a few weeks ago to the whole Afghan refugee crisis, right? We banded together. We, We grouped together. We thought through it. We combined our resources. And a group of us prepared so that in the case that those who are the neediest come to our neighborhoods and community were positioned to help them. That was awesome. Last year, through a pandemic of all things, we maintained support for 18 missionary units on the field and raised $50,000 for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that goes to foreign missions. that's, That's incredible. That's awesome. That is amazing. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of you and me. That's exciting, right? We care about the lost. We put our money where our mouth is. That's awesome. What about our time? I, I see a lot of people sacrificially giving their time. Not just, not just to help each other out in the body, like taking meals to those who are sick and, and all these other things. Our body loves on each other. That's awesome. But also reaching out to others. Even like Aurelia was talking about this morning, there's, there's opportunities, right, to be a gospel light to those in our neighborhoods and communities. So I see people doing this. I even heard about a a group of folks last month who went to visit some folks in jail. I don't know if they're believers or not, but the point is they encouraged them. They sang carols. Way to go. Good on you guys. That's great. That's great. So past perseverance matters. Okay, bottom line. And mystery man, he's comforting these believers that he's saying past perseverance matters. It's evidence of God's work in our lives. So praise the Lord. The same is true of us, Rocky. Let's not get caught up in the, in the glory days at the same time. It's easy to revel about cool things we've done and put up plaques on the wall, and right? Let's not get caught up in the glory days. It's a new year. We did awesome things for the Lord in 2022. We endured in faith in many ways, right? There's evidence of endurance. 
But how are we going to live today? How are we going to live this year, 2022? How are we going to push forward and endure? Gospel-focused, right? That's, that's our theme for the year. I would say um, two, two quick, cool opportunities I just thought of. Um, uh, you, you saw a brief like, presentation for the Heights ministry. Um, Mr. Buckland gave that. Well, the Heights kicks off um, this, this Tuesday, actually. And this is an awesome opportunity for all of us to be intentional about getting the gospel out to people who need it most. People who don't have the knowledge of the truth that we have right here. It's a great chance to do that. We need more tutors and Bible teachers. So if you're interested, and I would say more people need to get involved in this, come go, go search, go find Pam Bristol or, or grab me and one of my brothers or somebody, Mr. Buckland or Jennifer Davis. Ask them about that. Mr. Ken Bandy, ask them about the heights. See how you can get involved. This is a great opportunity. It's a forgiving environment to witness to kids, to share your faith, to grow in your ability to teach God's word. This is great stuff. There's a place for everyone. Go get involved in the counseling ministry. Find a way to plug in. If you have half an hour or an hour to spare in a week, see how you can squeeze that in. Everybody needs to be involved. We need to endure together. Let's, let's kick this thing up into third or fourth gear this year. Let's not slow down. Let's keep enduring. Because our confidence, again, it's in the work of Christ, but assurance of salvation is possible for the enduring Christian. So let's keep enduring, church. But enduring isn't easy. It's, it's a lot of work. It's hard. It's difficult. Enduring isn't easy. So what fuels Christian endurance? Answer, faith. Faith. Verse, verses 37 and 39. Let's keep reading. For... Mystery man says, for yet, a, and he's making a quote here, yet a little while and the coming one will come and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's the end of our text. Mystery man, he goes back to the book of Habakkuk, actually, and he pulls out this key verse. And he, and he shares with his readers that the key attribute for the people of God from all time is faith. Faith endures, uh, faith fuels endurance. How are they going to, going to endure? It's through faith. And so he encourages them. He says, while you wait for Jesus' return, and he's, and he's using this quote here, while you're waiting for Jesus' return, true believers, their lives are marked by biblical Faith. That's how it's always been. That's how it was in Habakkuk's day, guys. That's how it is in our day. Faith fuels endurance. And I'm confident. He's confident too. He says the last thing. I love that. He gives this harsh, blistering warning, right? And then he says at the end here, but, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. And I'm confident that that, that is most of us here. That is most of us here today. We're not those who shrink back. We're not those who shrink back. We are those who live by faith and preserve our souls. And I'm going to leave it, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to stop because we're about to spend like two months, I heard, as a church journeying through the Old Testament in, 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 in Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the lives of guys and gals, not too dis, not basically very similar to us, right? Who made mistakes, who weren't perfect, but whose lives were marked by biblical faith. And it's going to be awesome. So I'll leave it at that. Um, looking forward to continuing to learn with you guys. And let's pray together.
Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its timeliness in our lives. It's no coincidence that you present warnings before us. There's some people in this congregation who need to heed those warnings and save their soul. There's others of us here who need reassurance, Lord. Those of us whose consciences are, are, um, are easily hurt by our sin, Lord, encourage us by the fruit of your working in our lives. Thank you that we can know for the true believer that there is assurance of our salvation. It's all because of you. It's what you've done on the cross and what you do now as our high priest. It's all because of you. And many of us, we see that fruit in our lives. Praise God, that's from you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving us and sustaining us. Lord, help us endure this year as a church. Help us endure in faith as we're gonna learn about Help us be your church. We need your help. Lord, we don't take lightly your warnings. We love you and we pray and ask all these things in your name. Amen.